Hello, everybody. It is so good to be back. I've missed the last two uh, services with COVID, but I'm now certified COVID-free. Uh, I've done the test and everything, and it's great to be back with you uh, and able to, to worship alongside with you um, and also bring you the word today. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17, we read these words. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Those words will probably be familiar to a lot of people here today. Um, They are a nice little summary of the Christian teaching about the Bible. They remind us just how important, just how central the Bible is to our faith. Um, And some parts of it we absolutely love. We get those parts, those verses um, stuck on mugs, on t-shirts. Some of us get them tattooed onto our body um, just to show how much we love those bits. And I'm sure that there are many people in this room right now who regularly read their Bible and know how some parts of it really affect their lives, really have an impact on them. However, I'm not sure we always grasp the importance of 2 Timothy 3. 16 to 17, because we sometimes forget that it says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us. It is totally okay to have verses that particularly speak to us or to have John 3:16 on the side of a mug, but sometimes we forget to remember that all scripture has value and is worth reading. And there are some parts of the Bible that just get a little bit neglected. They're avoided because they're awkward or perhaps because they're uncomfortable to read. And they are still inspired by God and they still have something to teach us. So today, I have a preacher's choice segment and I've chosen to pick an uncomfortable, awkward part of the Bible. A part that I don't think I've ever heard preached on before, but I happened to stumble upon while doing my daily Bible reading and thought, you know what? That would be a great one to preach on. Unfortunately, it being the first service of the new year, it's not great that I picked one of the most depressing parts of the Bible that was born out of some of the darkest moments that the people of God ever went through. But we're going to have a look at it. We're going to see what God has to say through it. And ultimately, we're going to see how this quite depressing bit of the Bible has a bit of hope. We're going to look at the book of Lamentations, okay? And one of the most depressing parts of Lamentations is the bit at the beginning, chapter one, verses one to 11. So if you have a Bible on you or you have a phone, feel free to to get that up, um, chapter one, verses one to 11 of Lamentations, and read along as I read it to you. Um, Just some context before I read it. Um, This has a very particular place in the history of Israel and Judah. This was a passage that was written at a time of destruction. The city of Babylon, which was the the capital of the nation of Judah, uh, which was where God had his temple, it was a center of the Jewish faith, that had been utterly destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in 587 BC. These verses were written just after that happened, just after many people had been taken captive, Many people have been led into exile, and everyone is still really upset about what's going on. 
So Lamentations 1, verses 1 to 11. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night, tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among the foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down and she has nowhere to run. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent, her priests groan. Her young women are crying how bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters and her enemies prosper, for the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They are too weak to run from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wondering, Jerusalem remembers her ancient splendor, but now she has fallen to her enemy, and there is no one to help her. Her enemy struck her down and laughed as she fell. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought to her future. Now she lives in the gutter with no one to lift her out. Lord, see my misery, she cries. The enemy has triumphed. The enemy has plundered her completely, taking every precious thing she owns. She has seen foreigners violate her sacred temple, the place the Lord had forbidden them to enter. Her people groan as they search for bread. They have sold their treasures for food to stay alive. O oh Lord, look, she mourns, and see how I am despised. That's only half a chapter of Lamentations. There are five chapters, and they're all like that. Just utter misery and sadness as a city and a nation reflects on having lost, and lost everything. Since World War II, there has been a massive upsurge in the number of apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic stories that are told. The rise of Hollywood and the rise of the modern-day film industry has been paralleled with the rise of nuclear weapons, with climate change, and pandemics. So naturally, there are loads and loads of films about end-of-the-world scenarios, about what happens to those who are left at the end. This is big budget blockbuster stuff. This draws the crowds. Um, the end of the world is turned into a movie. For instance, The Day After Tomorrow, which was released in 2004, has the villain of human-produced climate change. Um, in that film, humans have messed up the environment so much that there is a shift to the weather patterns of the world, 
um, and a new ice age is born. The Northern Hemisphere is completely frozen solid, and we follow a group of people, a bunch of students, as they try and survive this new world. In Independence Day, it's not quite so deep, it's just some aliens invading the world, um, who are intent on stealing the Earth's resources. Big spaceships uh, hover over the major cities of the world and then blow those cities up in what is some pretty impressive special effects for the 90s. But fortunately, Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum, their characters are there to save the world. In Terminator, in iRobot, and in The Matrix, we have the classic storyline, oft repeated, of computers and robots trying to take over the world, held back by only a few defiant humans who try to save the day, sometimes more successfully than others. In each of those films, we have an apocalypse, but we have a different reason for it. Some of those films want to be deep and want us to reflect on what causes that in order to challenge us in our current day behavior. That's what the ones about climate change are all about. Some of them just want to sell some tickets and blow some stuff up on the screen. But whether or not they are shallow or deep, all of them betray something about humans, particularly humans in the West. They betray a fear in our imagination, something we all deeply worry about. What if all this... What if this life that we have poured all our energy into, we have poured our lives into, we spent years working on, what if it all just fails one day? What if the world as we know it comes to an end in a big disaster? And there is one particular scene of, that appears in most of these movies that I think captures that fear really, really well. And in that scene, the camera pans out and we see a landscape shot. And there is a city in ruins. Usually it's a recognizable city like New York, London, or Washington, D.C., and there are a few key landmarks dotted around it, like the House of Parliament, the Statue of Liberty, maybe um, the White House or something like that, and those are clearly visible ruins of what they once were. Has everyone seen a, a scene like that in a, in a movie? Just like the, the remnants after a disaster. Well, Lamentations 1 is that scene in the Bible. Babylon has arrived, it has destroyed Jerusalem, and Lamentations 1 shows us the aftermath. That is the panning out and showing us the destruction that is left. In verse 2 and verse 7, it says this is now a lonely city. It says all her friends have betrayed her. There is no one left to help. In verse 3, we read that the population has been removed from Jerusalem and scattered around the world. It says they have been led into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. This is a deserted scene that we're looking at. In verse 4, we read that her religion, once something Jerusalem was so central to, has been devastated. It said her priests groan and crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city is quiet. In verse 11, it says that Jerusalem has no food. The people that are left, it says, her people groan as they search for bread. It's now a starving city. There's no food left. And in verses 1, 7, 11, it reminds us just how f f far Jerusalem has fallen. It says, though she was once great among the nations, she now sits alone like a widow. She remembers her ancient splendor, but now she has fallen to her enemy. To pay for food, her people are forced to sell treasures to stay alive. This was a once great city, but now it's fallen. 
And worst of all, these verses tell us that Jerusalem deserved all this. In verse 5, it says, Her oppressors have become her masters and her enemies prosper. For the Lord has punished her for many sins. And later on, Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. This wasn't the destruction of a noble city valiantly doing good and standing for what was right against an evil empire. While Jerusalem is mourned in these verses, as the destruction of any city should be mourned, these passages are really, really clear. This suffering is just. This city committed great evil. It turned away from God. It turned away from his ways, and it brought destruction on itself. They turned away from God, so God left them to their enemies and didn't protect them any longer. The exact nature of the sin is not in these verses. You can read other books in the Bible if you want to read exactly what they did to turn away from the Lord. There's probably some idolatry going on. There's probably some exploiting of each other, probably some economic crimes and stuff like that. But that's not the emphasis here. What matters is simply that Jerusalem has turned against God, so God has turned away from her. Jerusalem has done evil. It has sinned, and God has punished it. And here in these verses, we see a glimpse of who God is. He is a just God, a God who cannot let evil stand and therefore will punish it. And justice can look terrifying. That is the sort of Old Testament message that makes people shy away from reading the Old Testament. It talks about judgment, it talks about destruction, so it isn't anybody's favorite. There's no one who's going to get Lamentations 1 on the side of a mug or in a poster for the house. It would be weird if you did, actually. I don't advise you to. People will start asking questions. And passages like this make some people want to abandon the Old Testament altogether, just focus on the nicer, friendlier New Testament where we see Jesus going around doing a few miracles. But there are two problems with abandoning the Old Testament because of that. Firstly, it means we haven't read the New Testament properly because there's just as much judgment and justice in the New Testament as there is in the Old. But secondly, and more importantly, it means they haven't read the Old Testament properly because the same kind and merciful God who exists in the New Testament and who sends Jesus, who does all these wonderful things, that same kind, merciful God is the God in these passages. And in fact, these passages actually reveal that in a very subtle way. Because these verses were written with a purpose. Partially, that purpose is exactly what we just saw, to describe what Jerusalem is like now, and to say, this is because of sin. However, they were written to do that within the context of a worship service. What we read just there was a prayer. It was maybe even a song, could have been set to music, that was meant to be read out or sung in a worship service like this two and a half thousand years ago. It was a group of people who put together ideas to, so they could come together in worship and just pour all their pain and their troubles before God. The people who had went through these events came together to worship God using this sort of song. And behind that point lies hope. Because this lament is directed to God, it means that it's directed to the right person. Because ultimately, God is the only person who can actually resolve the situation they have found themselves in. 
The only one who can bring restoration to those facing judgment for their sins is the person sinned against, in this case, God. Because if the problem is that Israel and Judah have sinned and are therefore facing the justice of God, then the only way out of that situation is for God to forgive them and to restore the relationship they once had with God. So they come in confession of sin. They come to seek forgiveness, restoration, and relationship. They appeal to God because he is the only one who can help them. They come in hope to their God as they weep because of the consequences of their sin. And suddenly, I don't think that passage seems so far away and so irrelevant to our everyday lives. Because how many times have each of us here, while facing the consequences of our sin, come before God, confessed to him, and sought restoration of our relationship. There may be some here right now who are experiencing that. Uh, Though the sins in, in Lamentations are not specified, we know exactly what our own sins are. We know how we hurt each other. We know how we hurt ourselves. We know how we hurt God. We know the desolation of being far away from him. We know the damage that sin can cause to our journey with God. And sometimes we need nothing more than just to come before him, admit that this all sucks, and it's all our fault. Restoration is only found for that in God's forgiveness, something that is ultimately only possible because of what happens in the New Testament, because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who died in our place on the cross and took the punishment that we deserve upon himself, We no longer need to bear the punishment because someone else has offered to pay the fine. So we can come before God just like the people who would have sung this this song from Lamentations would have done. We can ask for forgiveness and we can be restored. And though they did not know the name Christ yet because they were about 500 years too early, the people who would have sung the songs in Lamentation surely knew the possibility of God's forgiveness. Because there are some parts of Lamentations that are a bit more cheerful. The final two verses, uh, Lamentations 5, verses 21 to 22, say this. Restore us, O Lord, and bring us back to you again. Give us back the joys we once had. Or have you utterly rejected us? Are you angry with us still? And we know that God did not give up on his people. The destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., was not the end of the people of God. They continued. And they continue to this day. Right now, two and a half thousand years later, we sit here as God's people, still the recipients of his grace. Earlier, I mentioned a few post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic films. And I mentioned some of the classics, some of the blockbusters. So Terminator, Day After Tomorrow, Independence Day, iRobot, The Matrix. Um, Big films, Uh, which cover a large spectrum of the the big summer blockbuster, end-of-the-world genre. But there was one noticeable absence, and if if you're a parent here today, you might realize there is one missing, because it's an apocalyptic film that was made for kids. And I think it's an absolute giant of the genre. It is a 2008 classic, WALL-E. Who here has seen WALL-E from 2008? Got a few? Yep. There we are. Now, in WALL-E... Um, It is based in a world that has been left completely uninhabitable um, by rubbish. 
Okay? Humans have produced loads and loads of rubbish and trash and all sorts of stuff, and it's piled up around the world, and the world is no longer inhabitable. And the main character is a robot who's one of many robots whose job is to clean up the Earth. The humans have left. They've gone on a space cruise ship um, and have left for many years, and they're hoping the robots just sort everything up out when they're gone. Unfortunately, the Earth is too badly polluted for that to happen. And one by one, all of the robots fail, apart from Wally. And the cruise ships never come back because they give up hope. And this one robot who is left, Wally, steadfastly goes around his business of cleaning up the Earth for generations. Now, this is a kid's film, but it is also an apocalyptic film. It is about a disaster that causes civilization to flee. But it also has a great deal of hope in it. Because Wally, over the course of the film, helps save the human race. He brings the human race back to Earth, and he brings restoration to the planet. He saves the day. And hope is actually a really, really important theme in apocalyptic movies. It's really seen clearly in Wally, but in the others too, there is always hope. It is a constant thing that the humans keep hoping that there could be restoration. There could be a life after this. They can make it through, and that's what keeps them fighting and keeps them going. And the same is true of our little apocalyptic story found in Lamentations. Though it seems depressing at first, and though the words are just full of sadness and pain, there is hope in them. Because they are a prayer to God for restoration. They are a confession. They are coming before him and they're saying, God, life sucks. Help. The people in Lamentations would have had the Psalms as well another Old Testament book which reveals some of the grace of God. In Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13, we read these words. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. That is the God that they appeal to. A God of justice, yes, but a God of compassion. So in Lamentations, we read about a just punishment of Jerusalem because of its sin. In light of that, please do not take your sin lightly. We all do stuff that is wrong. We all mess up, but please don't take that lightly. I do not know where each of you struggle in your life. I'm not asking you to tell me today, but lamentation shows God's taking sin seriously. And that means that we should too. We cannot continue to sin without expecting that God will not call us to account one day, whether on this life or the next. God is just. That's what Lamentations tells us. And therefore, justice will be done. But in Lamentations, we read a poem, a worship song, a prayer that is directed to the only one who can bring restoration. So just as we do not take sin lightly, we should not take our salvation lightly either. As we find ourselves in moments of desolation, as, as sin brings us 
away from God, we can remember that restoration is possible by God's grace. Our God is just, and therefore he doles out a just punishment, but our God is also compassionate and filled with mercy, and looking to Christ, who took the punishment for our sins, he can look at us and he can forgive us for anything that we have done. When God is around, there is always room for hope. Maybe some here right now do not have a very good relationship with God. Maybe you have never known him. Maybe you did know him once, but you've walked away. Maybe you love him dearly, but because of a sin that things aren't just right right now. In that case, I urge you today to pray. Uh, Paul's going to come up now, wherever he is. Yeah, Paul. And he's going to lead us in worship. Um, and as he does so, I'd like you to reflect and to, to pray about what's going on. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray over us all a prayer of confession and uh, thankfulness to God for his son. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a just God. In this life and the next, you are working to ensure that those who do evil are confronted. The problem is, Lord, that sometimes we are the people doing evil. We come before you and we ask for forgiveness for what we have done, and we trust ourselves to your compassion, mercy, and grace. We look to the cross where Christ took the sins of the world upon himself, and we ask him to take our sins from us. May we be restored to you. In Jesus' name, amen.